0: Hello and welcome to this second seminar in our Michaelmas Term series on the dictatorship syndrome in the Middle East. Today we're moving from Egypt to Iran and we're meeting to talk about authoritarian or revolutionary reflections on the nature of the state in the Islamic Republic of Iran. I'm delighted to be joined here today by two very good specialists on contemporary Iranian politics. One is Maryam Alemzadeh from Princeton, the other is Siavosh Ranjbar Daemi, And we're going to be giving each of them 10 minutes, roughly, to give us a short presentation. Then we'll have another 10 minutes or so in which I'll engage in conversation with them. And then after that, we'll move on to the general Q&A for half an hour. We do need to end the session promptly at six, so we need to keep to time. So without more ado, I'd like to turn to Maryam Olemzadeh and invite her to give us the first presentation of our seminar this afternoon.
1: Hello everyone. Thank you so much for having me in this seminar series. I'm uh, really excited to be part of this program. So we hear very frequently from the Islamic Republic officials about uh, how the government in Iran, its institutions, its policies, and even the nation itself is a revolutionary one this marker revolutionary even though we're 40 years 40 plus years away from the 1979 revolution is still very well alive in the governmental discourse on all levels of its operation so the question i'd like to address today is what does this emphasis on this on the revolutionary character mean in practice beyond just an ideological posture of course, there's one obvious function. It gives the authoritarian state the justification to repress any other voice as counter revolutionary, to frame it uh, very easily as counter revolutionary. But beyond this ideological function, is there any veracity to the claim to a revolutionary nature? Does it mean anything with regards to actual everyday dynamics of governance? And I believe the answer is yes. I have done extensive research on the origins of what is arguably the most prominent state apparatus in contemporary Iran, and that is the Islamic Revolutionary Guards Corps, uh, also known as SEPAH to Farsi speakers. I think this early history tells us a lot about the nature of state and governance in Iran at large. By showing us a certain quote-unquote revolutionary characteristics that became a vital part of state institutions, including the IRGC, from early on, uh, but not only limited to that uh, early phase, it has left its footprint for the years to come on state institutions. So we know in the early history of the the, uh, Islamic Republic of Iran, there was incessant friction between the liberal-minded technocratic provisional government led by Mehdi Bazargan on the one hand, and the more uh, radical clerics around Khomeini and their lay followers who worked within revolutionary institutions largely. The IRGC became an official entity only about two months after the February 1979 revolution. But in the first few years of its existence, its support came mostly from the radical clerical camp in the government and not the technocratic section, which actually controlled the budgets. The technocratic provisional government and later on the first elected president, Abu'l-Hassan bani were more fond of refurbishing the professional police and the army and not investing in the IRGC. This means that contrary to conventional wisdom, the IRGC did not receive comprehensive state support from the moment of inception in April 1979. It took another two years approximately for that to happen. So before it acquired such support, before it had a proper organization and enough funds or equipment or even minimal training for its volunteers, it was put to the test of straining situations, such as the ethnic conflict in many border areas. The most intensive of them was in Kurdistan, I'm sure you know. And very soon after, uh, it engaged in a conventional war with Iraq when Iraq invaded Iran in uh, September 1980. In my research, I tried to understand what this early pre-consolidation involvement in action meant for the future of the IRGC and governance in Iran at large. One thing I found in my interviews with uh, first-generation IRGC veterans, as well as some active members of the organization was this, that either in intensive battle situations or in everyday organizational work in uh, like uh, urban centers, they trusted one another's improvisation in the lack of any other structure, in the lack of any professional training and experience, as I mentioned, but they didn't do this just as a last resort. Relying on improvised direct action of supposedly dedicated volunteers was actually much more in line with the spirit of the revolutionary times, and it was accredited as such by all levels of leaders and uh, the peers as well. So volunteers, small group leader, leaders, and uh, politicians in the radical camp all relied on this asset, on this urge for direct action among volunteers, not just to get the job done when there was no other way to go, but because they also believed this was the right way of doing things. So To give you an example, you know that the IRGC was involved in action uh, against Kurdish insurgency as early as 1979. Alongside the regular army who was trying to defend its barracks there. After one of the operations, one of the joint operations, the IRGC operations commander Abu Sharif uh, said this in a press interview quote, the government and the army tied our hands in the past. We will not listen to them from now on and we'll act directly where necessary. If we need something and the government does not provide it immediately, the people will do do that for us, quote. And this is a very prominent sentiment going on on uh, different ranks and levels. But this is also not an uh, uncommon incident in the first couple of years after any revolution. So how is the case of Iran different? I think it's rather unique, the case of state building in Iran, because the reliance on improvised direct action was institutionalized both within the IRGC and within the section of the more radical side of the government mainly because it had to be deployed under intensive war conditions. So it was deployed in the lack of other resources. It paid off at least partially, and it was validated as true revolutionary dedication. So it became a modus operandi that was hard to let go of, uh, even after the first few years. As current examples, contemporary examples, think about, for instance, the encounters between the IRGC small boats and US Navy units in the Persian Gulf that always creates friction, or about the downing of uh, a US drone in 2019 by the Iranians uh, around the Iranian border. In such instances, top-tier command is hardly involved. But regardless of how involved they are, the Iranian state and the military proudly present such instances as uh, the act of a brave and dedicated soldier or a group of them firing at will and encourages this sort of action further. Now, how does this help us with understanding the nature of authoritarianism in Iraq? The question is also a good conduit to the theme of the seminar series, which is Dr. Alaswani's book, The Dictatorship Syndrome. I think the fact that many revolutionary conditions, uh, including in Iran, lead to authoritarianism is not simply caused by, as Dr. Aswani suggests, good citizens who identify with authoritarianism or their, quote, robust and chronic obedience, unquote. Or even uh, it's not due to the fact that, as he describes the Iranian case, I'm quoting, countries under the thumbs of men of religion are more receptive to dictatorship, end quote. These all do play a part for sure, Uh, although I believe they are uh, more uh, effects of other structural forces and not causes of the rise of authoritarianism. But in addition to such factors, I believe more importantly, we have to remember that that a revolution provides opportunities for direct action, which in turn give the participants a sense of having their own faith in their hands. It is this sense of participation, rather than tame compliance or being good, obedient citizens, that lures people into cooperating with the revolutionary apparatus. In the case of Iran, the continued availability of venues for direct action has preserved this attraction to some extent. The continued attraction for volunteers in organizations such as the Basij, which is the um, like the mobilization branch of the RGC has in turn created a system with flexible capillary control based on the participation of a good number of the people. So to wrap up, I'd like to suggest that behind the security apparatus Panopticon and its power that is infused into the society lies a revolutionary institution, albeit in an organizational sense of the word, not in a radical ideological sense of the word. This revolutionary institution tolerates and encourages direct action that is ideologically in line with the Islamic Republic models, of course, and thereby it sustains a sizable popular base over the years. This popular base is not necessarily brainwashed, that is to say, um, to serve the state, rather institutions of power keep them committed and interested by authorizing spontaneous direct action, even though revolutionary times are long past now. I'll stop here, thank you very much.
2: Thank you, Marianne, for this very interesting overview over the uh, role and function of the IRGC over the decades. My remarks are going to be pretty much centered on the topic of my my book, namely this whole uh, issue regarding state institutional building within the Islamic Republic. My contention is that uh, the very construction of the state from the revolution onwards for the past four decades has really been a work in progress and we can have a robust debate, obviously not on this occasion, on whether the Islamic Republic can today really be defined as a state according to Western uh, political theory ca- canons. And. One of the reasons why the uh, debate and discussion within the Islamic Republic on the exact nature of the state and on the exact limits and boundaries of the power and authority of each institution is still ongoing after 40 years, also has to do with the fact that uh, these state institutions have uh, very varied and uh, and non-uniform origins. Suffice to note that both the Iranian post-revolutionary constitution, both in its 1979 edition and its 1989 revision is really a mixture between Western political traditions, particularly the French Fifth Republic from which the current institution of the presidency was directly inspired and also fringed uh, doctrines of Shiism such as the Faghi, but also ad hoc bodies that were brought about by various exigencies and crises in the management of the state, particularly throughout the 1980s. Uh, cases in point here are the Maslahat Council and the Supreme National Security Council. And uh, such an unwieldy arrangement has worked in quotes uh, during the past decades uh, for a number of reasons. One of the key reasons behind this uh, was of course the fact that the political elite and the political class was configured in a way which allowed for competitive politics to determine the incumbents of several state institutions, uh, particularly the parliament and of course the presidency. Uh, And uh, this was buttressed by factionalism, which was really the the model around which everyday politics really organized in Iran. Uh, However, I would argue that this aspect, namely uh, a competitive form of politics within the precinct of the Islamic Republic's political class, has faded in uh, recent years as the Islamic Republic has started to grapple with challenges from a new opposition, which I will discuss later, and also uh, the vexing issue of generational change within its political class. And the absence of suitable vehicles for implementing the same, such as structured political parties, which have been absent really in Iran for decades. Coupled uh, to all of this, one thing that is really affecting the nature of the uh, contemporary state in the Islamic Republic is the deepening legitimacy crisis that the Islamic Republic has been facing since 2009. And since 2009, we've had different waves of, uh, of significant uh, popular unrest and, and protest. In 2009, we had a mainly urban, urban middle-class protest against the electoral outcome of that year, but it has morphed into serious strife amongst the urban margins, the fringes of, uh, of society uh, due to political and, and especially economic reasons in recent years. And the reaction of the state system as a whole to these challenges has been resort to uh, violence and to a barbarian form of control over, uh, over the means of violence, which has been endorsed uh, by the entire gamut of East uh, inner regime personalities and figures from those who are uh, defined as reformists to those who are defined as conservatives. In the past, I would argue uh, the political class had figures who could cater to such anger or to to such desires for change from various strata of society and turn them into electoral capital. And that was one of the reasons why, for example, Mahmoud Ahmadinejad managed to rise to the presidency in 2005 I believe that this potential has uh, has weakened considerably in recent times with the political class entrenching uh, being unable to offer suitable response to these challenges uh, beyond the aforementioned adoption of uh, security discourse. So the other important factor that I mentioned previously consists of the Islamic Republic facing an evolving opposition. So in the 1980s and 1990s, What constituted the opposition to the Islamic Republic were mostly the remnants of secular forces, uh, from the monarchists to the leftists. Then the Mujahideen al organization, of course, which emerged as, uh, as, as, as the opposition in exile in Iraq, and so forth. These were either people aligned to the Ancien Regime. Uh, or uh, entities and personalities who had taken part in the revolution, but then had fallen out progressively with the Khomeini's faction who uh, grabbed control of uh, state power in the Islamic Republic. However, now this has evolved considerably. It is mostly domestic. It is not exiled like the rest, the, the, the previous generations of opposition activists. Personalities and entities not connected to the old political organizations. So examples are the spontaneous trade unions that have emerged since more or less 2006. I believe the first one was the trade union of the workers of the bus company of Tehran. Now we have worker activism in the form of the Haftapé workers and and people who have rallied around our cause like uh, Sepide Golian. These trade unions have uh, led to some unprecedented developments. For example, in recent months, we've seen the most serious industrial action in Iran in the past four decades, pretty much since the Ottoman winter of 1978. Then we've had lawyers, such as uh, of civil eminence society, prominently lawyers, and here Nasris so today, uh, the imprisoned lawyer is a, is a clear example of this, student leaders, and then even relatives of those who have been uh, imprisoned or repressed, who turn into oct- opposition activists themselves. And this form of opposition is homegrown. It has little or no ties to the veteran groups, as we said, does not really subscribe to key milestone events which formed the Islamic Republic, uh, the revolution, the Iran-Iraq war. It doesn't really share the political class's reading uh, of these. And so far has found really little in terms of the state's willingness to genuinely engage with it. So the state is not really opening up to this form of opposition. I'll finish with some considerations regarding what could happen in the transition from Uh, The current uh, Second Islamic Republic, if you can name it this way, the first one having been, of course, the one which was in place between 1979 and 1989, and this one which has started in the post khomeini era and, uh, and during the leadership of Ayatollah Ali Khamenei. So in my view, another constitutional revision following the passing of the current Supreme Leader appears inevitable. Ayatollah Khamenei's rule is strongly personalistic and shaped around his own uh, personal authority and his own uh, relationship with the rest of the political class, as to some extent, to a great extent, actually, Khomeini's rule was prior to him. So this Third Islamic Republic, if you can call it this way, is likely to present uh, considerable differences with regards to previous ones, particularly in terms of popular participation, and I would argue elite dynamism and elasticity. So popular participation in in choosing, in in, in selecting uh, some of the incumbents of the state institutions, but also in regards to uh, the extent to which the elite will have uh, diversity within its ranks. Uh, It is on course, therefore, in my view, to be an evolution of the previous republics, the first and second one, and will not really be a revolution with regards to them, but will probably constitute a further drift towards the entrenchment of uh, the new generation of the political class on, on the state in ways in which we uh, have to uh, still observe and see. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Siavosh, and, and thank you both. I, I think your two presentations have, in a, in a very nice way, pulled us in slightly different directions. And, you know, I work extremely well with the, with the title of today's seminar, which is authoritarian or revolutionary. And Mariam, it seems to me, in emphasising the institutionalisation of informality and spontaneity in the modus operandi of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, has suggested that that revolutionary aspect is still very much with us. Whereas C.R. has talked much more about, you know, the way that the system is evolving, and as it loses its capacity to respond to societal moods and currents, it's actually becoming less revolutionary and more authoritarian in a traditional sense. So I'm going to sort of ask you to reflect a little bit on each other's arguments uh, as my second question, but first I've got a specific question to each of you. I'll start with you, Mariam. We've often read in some of the Western literature on the Revolutionary Guard Corps, and indeed it's, not, it's a view that one often encounters in Iran as well, that the Revolutionary Guard Corps has become more and more a sort of power behind the throne within the Islamic Republican system, that it's been accruing more powers, it's been extending its activities into greater areas of life. When it crosses horns with the organs of government, it's tending to emerge on top. So I just wonder whether you could tell us something about how you view those arguments. Do, do you think that this kind of spontaneity and informality that you see in it in any way argues against that, or is it something that could work perfectly well with that analysis?
1: Thank you, Edmund. That's a great question. I just want to point out that it's quite impossible to get accurate data on how this like overarching influence of the IRGC is actually to measure it because we all know it's a, a highly securitized apparatus. They're not even still uh, letting out a lot of the documents that are like 30 year old, 40 years old. And, and like sitting in their archives, they are like treating it as a matter of security and nothing else. So yeah, a lot of what we say about it and what we hear about it are conjectures. That's it. I think this proposition, which sounds like a reasonable one, uh, one, does not go against the revolutionary nature that I'm, uh, in the particular sense that I'm talking about here. It's actually one of the uh, strengths of the IRJC has been from the beginning, especially in the early years of the Iran-Iraq war, that's their power to recruit volunteers and allow them to feel in charge brought in more volunteers, and that was their winning card in their rivalry with the regular army. Of course, it faded with years, but I, I believe that it because it was institutionalized to tolerate this kind of action, it still continues to exist, although to a lesser extent. So that being a, a part of their strength, and the fact that they there actually are still a good number of very dedicated ideologically committed leaders commanders and volunteers like through all the ranks that are able to claim they are the true uh, what's the word like true supporters of the cause of the revolution there is no argument against them so when uh, someone like Qasem Soleimani goes out and devises a radical strategy of extending the Iran's influence in the region, it's not just a political strategic move. It's that the, the way he is doing it, the quote-unquote revolutionary way he's doing it, the way he is like down to earth with his personnel and either vol- volunteers or drafts still is the idealistic image that the Islamic Republic needs and uh, has always promoted. So there is no arguing with that. So part of the, the influence and strength of Sepa comes from this very aspect, I believe.
0: Thank you very much. And Siavosh, the question I'd like to put to you has to do specifically with where you ended your presentation, thinking about a third republic. And you, you suggested that just as uh, the transition from Khomeini to Khamenei had necessitated a, you know, a constitutional revision and a significant change in the character of the leadership. I would like to argue against that and say that Khomeini's leadership was very different for many reasons that have to do with Khomeini's unique role in the revolution and unique charisma and he could in a way carry that institution by his force of personality. Khomeini the institution has clearly evolved massively. I mean, it's grown into a a vast bureaucracy apart from anything else. But I wonder whether there is really going to be the same need for any significant revision of it. Couldn't it be argued that this is actually now an institution that has gained so much uh, momentum and so much of a shape that it's quite likely to to continue? Uh,
2: Thanks very much, Edmund. Very, very good question. And obviously, you know, it's very tough to predict the future. We don't have a crystal <laughs> ball. But if we look at the past to, uh, to gain some maybe insight on, on, you know, what the future might hold, you could argue that, first of all, uh, Khamenei took quite some time to build up the institutional leadership as it emerged in its stable sort of phase, if you want, which I would argue took hold from around the end of the 90s. And much of uh, Khamenei's modus operandi really rests in certain types of personal relations he has with with a variety of actors. So, uh, you know, to step uh, for a moment into Maryam's patch, you could argue that the relationship that Khamenei has with the uh, IRGC uh, top brass is a very unique and personalistic one. And, uh, and, and you know, proof of this was uh, in, in, in the sort of grief that we saw from the Supreme Leader during, for example, Ghassan Soleimani's funeral. That was rather unique, I think, in, in the history of, of, of major funerals since 1989. For the new Supreme Leader to, to build up again, such a personal web of connections, which would eventually emerge into the sort of bureaucracy you mentioned, and into the sort of Beta Rahbari infrastructure that we we saw emerge, in my view, takes time and, of course, will be uh, also really shaped by the extent to which the new leadership and the sort of its allies across this uh, state structure will have shared personal experiences prior to that person becoming leader. So if you look at Khamenei, it's Khamenei's experience on the front in the 1980s, and the sort of preliminary links he established with the IRGC leadership at the time, which became a constant and went on and on and on. And, and you see that now he's surrounded by people who, uh, who fought in the war, really, um, to various extents, uh, the, the IRGC top brass, but also people who were really were with him in the thick and thin, even through some very testing times in the 1980s and in my book for example I discussed the way he uh, he defended vilayati uh, for example in the 1980s and then Bilayati stuck to him all the way uh, throughout so so I think that this sort of characteristics if the new leader has to uh, has to rely on them will take some time and uh, the other issue is of course that uh, the process for the selection of the supreme leader uh, in Iran is is more or less as opaque as uh, as the one to select the Pope in in the Vatican. You could argue. I mean, it's it's very, in my view, it's very very difficult to to get a good impression of who the next Supreme Leader might be beforehand. Uh, A lot depends on the moment in which the selection is made. So, Khamenei's uh, rise to the Supreme Leadership also really has to do with the exact moment in which that whole process happened, which was in the midst, by the way, of the constitutional revision. There were around a dozen sessions of the the Constitutional Revision Council, which happened, Before his selection, and then then things got a bit messy, he had to recuse himself actually from taking part in that council and discuss the new constitution, and so on and so forth. So I think the the, the moment in which this will occur will also be important. So I agree with you to a certain extent, but I also think that that sort of personal characteristics beyond the definitions of of the institution and the definitions of the, the sort of impersonal definitions of who the Supreme Leader might be will have a major impact.
0: Thank you very much. I I want to prolong our conversation and monopolize you and uh, make you answer the question that I said I was going to ask. But I've also been watching the clock and I don't want to deprive the many people in our audience of the opportunity to ask questions. So I'm actually going to move on now and uh, hand over to Eugene Rogan, who is going to moderate the Q&A session. Eugene.
3: Thank you very much, Ed. And I'm having a little bit of trouble with my video feed here, but if you could give me a thumbs up if you're hearing me clearly, please brilliant. I don't want to shout at our audience either. The questions are coming in rather rapidly now, and I will try and take them in quick order, and if our panelists could give me relatively quick answers to the questions, we can get through as many of the audience's important questions as we, as we can. I have one from uh, Joanna De Groot at York to begin with, and I actually, Ed, you might want to weigh in on the answer too because you were involved in the title for this panel. But to asks, I'd like to probe the choice of the terms authoritarian and revolutionary as alternatives. She asks, isn't there a convergence between the two? So if we can start there, please.
0: I think I should start with this because I suggested the title really is a provocation. And I admitted to those speakers that it was a provocation and it, that there clearly is no incompat- incompatibility between these two. But I thought it would provoke stimulate both their ideas and and also our conversation. and i I think it's working in those terms, but uh, no, I don't think any of us suppose that these are uh, mutually exclusive terms.
3: Thank you, Ed. And again, viewers, if you put your name to your question, I assume that you'd like your name made public. If you'd like to ask your question anonymously, just post anonymous for your name. The next question comes from Talal Muhammad. And he would like to question how our speakers view the role of the IRGC domestically and in foreign policy. And particularly, what happens if a former member of the IRGC, such as current Majlis Speaker Kalibov, is elected as president? What would that mean for relations with the Arab states of the Persian Gulf, such as Saudi
1: Arabia? Um, If I may answer first, that's a great question as we know the irgc has expanded its influence beyond iran and i think a, an interesting fact here is that although this was on the agenda from the moment of the inception of the irgc the very first attempts to do so failed or was actually resisted from within the irgc when a fraction of the irgc under the leadership uh, or under the kind of tutelage of ayatollah montazeri tried to expand the revolution, as they would say it, in a very radical way, it faced resistance from within the and from from within the clerical section of the state, and it was gradually crushed down with the execution of one of the important figures who was also related to Ertula Montazeri. It was later on after the Iran-Iraq War that another movement started, which operated not based on the radical liberation ideology but on a like a very informal kind of infusion of militias in the middle east and kind of building them in the IRGC's image which is a state sponsored militia and not an underground insurgent one so that's something that i i always found interesting in terms of what will happen if uh, a sepahi so like uh, a would be elected in the next presidential election. This this is uh, Siavosh's field of expertise. I won't say much, but I agree with Siavosh. I think it goes along with his line of thinking that a more kind of pragmatic mindset has gradually been instituted within at least a number of IRGC commanders. And Yeah, it will be interesting to see how they would um, like tone down the ideological revolutionary discourse to be able to follow the pragmatic route. Yeah, I think Siavush will be able to say more. Thank you, Marianne. Siavush,
3: could I ask you to finish
2: answering this question, please? Uh, Yes, well... Very briefly, a couple of points. Before I get to Ghalibov, uh, I won't go over what Marianne was saying, but I would invite people to reflect on the fact that the IRGC is really branching out in more and more fields. So one thing that has really caught my interest in recent times is the uh, IRGC's activities in the cultural and uh, arts uh, fields. For example, it has funded a company called Safir Films, which is producing documentary after documentary covering every aspect of 20th century Iranian history. And uh, they're doing so because the RGC is involved in what I call generational change. It's trying to reach out to the generations, to the considerable amount, I would say the majority of the Iranian population, which doesn't have a living memory of the revolution, doesn't have a living memory of the war anymore. And therefore, it's trying to capture its attention and to steer its direction and to orient its understanding of these seminal events. And of course, the, the main challenge is from abroad. Uh, you see how, uh, for example, the recent documentary by the BBC, which brought about details of a secret session of, uh, of the RGC in 1363. I'm sorry, I don't know the Gregorian calendar, brought about a very, very lively debate inside Iran and, uh, and a lot of uh, soul searching over how exactly to portray these histories. So the RGC is actually becoming a competitor of myself and Marianne to some certain extent, right? They're branching out not in the academic sphere, but they're branching out in the in trying to interpret and trying to develop outputs on the past in in a way in which they can capture the attention of really society. This is very important, I think, and this is goes hand in hand with what you read in in, in policy reports about the RGC's grab on the economy about. Uh, its role in, in politics, about the fact that, yes, uh, we could we could be facing the next president to be uh, somebody who comes out with a very clear and very prominent IRGC background. But to to finish, uh, what will it mean for relations with the Arab states or the Persian Gulf, such as Saudi Arabia? Well, I think that any uh, new Iranian president has to wake up to a rather pronounced shifting signs in the Middle East, right? And I don't think that A President Biden, if elected, would undo what's going on now in terms of uh, Israel getting a toehold on the shores of the Persian Gulf, right, through Bahrain and and the UAE. And I I think that if there is any pragmatism in in the outlook of the new president, IOGC or not, they'll have to adapt to this reality and to shifting sands elsewhere as well, I would say, in Lebanon and Iraq.
3: Thank you both very much. Yasemin Mather asks how we can explain or even reconcile systematic corruption amongst leaders of the Islamic Republic and senior ranks of the Revolutionary Guards with the revolutionary character of the organization. So coming back to the revolutionary word in your title.
1: I take it upon me to answer first (laughs) because I'm the, uh, the revolutionary representative, I think. Uh, this is this is a great question because it brings out what I wanted to say but left out uh, for the sake of time, and that is a part of this quote-unquote revolutionary modus operandi is informality, and informality breeds corruption or makes it easier from the very like get-go of the formation of state institutions and or what became, or like transforming into state institutions in the revolutionary days the clerics and their followers, their lay followers, went about things as informally as possible. They did have organizations, say, the Committee for Welcoming the Imam, Comité Estabal Imam Khomeini, or the Revolutionary Council, and many uh, other councils, as Siyawur suggested, were just popping out. But any task that they faced, they went about the organizational settings. They could meet and decide on something, and then right after one individual decided that he wanted to do things differently and he would go about and do it and he would be welcomed back within the community. It wasn't like he wouldn't be shunned because of that. It was just an accepted behavior. And this continued over the years as again Sio was suggested. Like if this organization didn't work, another organization would pop up more informally like Shora councils are the, the more informal type of state institutions that are prevalent in Iran. And even the shurahs, the council, are not like enforcing too much organizational constraint. And I think that is what, like that's how the revolutionariness and uh, the corruption actually go hand in hand
3: any follow-up on that question?
2: Uh, Very, very quickly. The the thing that strikes me about uh, corruption, and of course, you know, corruption was something that in previous decades, the opposition, that opposition I mentioned outside the country would would keep uh, going on about, about how the entire Islamic Republic was corrupt and sometimes coming up with, you know, remarkable but not very verifiable uh, documents to back it up. But the recent periods, corruption has become, really, uh, a battleground. It has become a a main tool for factional fighting, for personal fighting. And all the dirty linen regarding corruption has been aired very publicly. Now uh, we are talking about the proceedings of trials in which remarkable figures that cannot even really be imagined are aired out publicly by judicial officials. So uh, in my view, it is quite interesting because obviously this has a very high opportunity cost, right? Uh, It it really leaves a dent in public opinion. People uh, open uh, newspapers in Tehran and read about all these incredible cases of uh, of corruption, truly incredible, but it is having an effect of thinning out the political elite and leaving and and sort of uh, bringing about, I wouldn't say a Darwinian evolution, but bringing about really a a clash between uh, between those who are really seeking to out their rivals uh, via corruption. So what was maybe electoral politics a few years ago has become uh, corruption battles, if you want, in the present. And it is therefore interesting to see how corruption has been politicized and and has sort of achieved this political function in in recent times.
3: Thank you very much, Jawors. I now have a question from Jason Kelly. Up to now, the discussion has been centered almost exclusively inward or domestically, in terms of this question of revolutionary versus authoritarian state. I'm curious about your thoughts on the export of the revolution, which is a key pillar of Khomeini's revolutionary vision, was to aggressively pursue a transnational pan-Islamic movement. Of course, this project has evolved for various reasons, But as briefly alluded to, with Mariam's comments about Qasem Soleimani's efforts in Iraq and Syria, wouldn't this new thrust of exporting the revolution's ideology or spirit over the past decade or so suggest that this is still a revolutionary state?
1: Thank you for this question. It's a great question. I want to emphasize that at least in this very later phase, maybe it was uh, different in the first three to four years after the revolution. But afterwards, exporting the revolution is not equivalent of exporting the ideology. Maybe just like it, it's only as ideological as, as far as it applies to promoting Shiism against Sunni Islam. But it's not a radical revolutionary ideology. Rather, it's a revolutionary style of, Organizing armed forces in the region, as we see in Hezbollah in Iraq, Hashd al and in the organization of Afghani and Iranian forces on the ground in Iraq and in Syria. So it has been the exporting of the revolution less in a, in an ideological sense or even the spirit, but in the underground modus operandi of working informally in the periphery of official states.
3: Thank you very much. Yahush, do you have any rejoinder? Uh,
2: I, will, I will just say that again, on a, on, a, on a separate matter, if you look at exporting the Islamic Republic, if you look at exporting support for the Islamic Republic, creating soft power for the Islamic Republic, I think the most successful person in the, in the recent times, in this regard was Ahmadinejad actually because Ahmadinejad really managed to generate support for the Islamic Republic in very different quarters, in Latin America, for example, right? So uh, for a while, he had built up all these uh, strange alliances with people who were very different from the body politic of the Islamic Republic, you know, morally, socially, so on and so forth. Chavez, Morales, and, uh, and, and even Lula for that matter. But this window of opportunity really went away with, with actually Rouhani becoming presidency president. And the Islamic Republic has gone back to exporting the revolution in very select locales, uh, as Marianne was saying. It's Iraq, it's Syria, it's Lebanon, it's wherever there's a foothold of, of sort of orthodox supporters who can assist the Islamic Republic and can act as the Islamic Republic's uh, foreign policy, non-state actor uh, allies. I, I think that If you look back at the way uh, Ahmadinejad, in this very controversial way, of course, at the cost of even some increased isolation uh, between, some increased crisis, if you want, between Iran and the West, succeeded in developing some form of export of the Islamic revolution, of, of the Islamic Republic's ideology, rather, beyond the usual confines of these activities, It looks very difficult for uh, Iran to, uh, for the Islamic Republic to be able to replicate this again. And certainly this hasn't happened during the Rohani period when we went back to traditional forms of of, uh, attempts at ideological and soft power expansion.
3: Thank you both very much. Staying in the international sphere, I have a question from Roger Higginson at the University of Sussex, who wants to know within the context of sanctions against Iran, and the desire in at least parts of the U.S. political establishment for regime change. Do the speakers have views on regime stability in Iran? Siavush, would you like to begin with that one?
2: Uh, Well, this goes back a bit to what I was saying in my main remarks. I think that the relationship between state and society is changing rather dramatically in recent years. Since 2009, we've had this ongoing on and off at times wildcat, at times organized, at times more or less participated. But there is increasing difficulty by the state to find candidates uh, who can, who, who, inner regime figures who can really cater to, uh, to these restless, to these rather uh, dissenting strata of society beyond the loyalist strata. You can go and have a look at the various evolution, of the various protests, 2017, 2018, last year, all the way back to 2009. And I think this tells you that in the last 10 years, the stability of the regime has changed in my view, uh, of the political system has changed and is quite different with regards to what it was previously. And of course, again, if you look at the parliamentary elections this year, another form of non-violent sort of expression of dissatisfaction within the society at large is voter participation. This was the lowest voter participation in parliamentary elections. So uh, if you look at state stability from this point of view, regime stability, uh, I think uh, things have waned in recent years. However, if you look at it from the Weberian point of view, the uh, monopoly over the means of violence, and here Marianne can discuss the RGC position, I think uh, there is still a commitment to ensure that this monopoly remains where it has been uh, over the past few decades, namely in the hands of the state, in the hands of the RGC, in the hands of the security forces, so uh, there is also the state's continued ability to securitize if needed, to chop off the internet if needed, and then, and then go back to, uh, to the status quo. So until there is this sort of ability by the state to, be, to, to engage in this limited, I would add, elasticity, uh, we can talk about instability, but, uh, but it needs to be seen to what extent this instability becomes uh, a danger. Mariam, any points to add?
1: Yeah, I will just add quickly that uh, just as Yavush brought it up, one aspect of regime stability is its uh, repression potential. And that repression potential does exist as a, as uh, we're speaking. It it has not waned. If you look at recent works like Nagas Bojoglu's book, uh, Iran refrained on the generational gap, actually, or the generational shift that Yavush was um, talking about, even the new generation is even more prone to take on radicalism because, uh, to go back to my own work, the attraction of direct action comes through when uh, you're engaging in such activity. For their rational needs, when they become more reasonable, they actually go elsewhere. The new generation of Basijis and the guards, they, they detach themselves from the ideological commitment. So yeah, I just wanted to add that there still is appeal among the younger generation of volunteers or paid personnel um, to engage in acts of repression. And we still need to deal with that in the years to come, I believe.
3: Thank you very much. I have a question from Frank Damoni who wants to bring China into our international perspective, seeing Iran as a major terminus on the new Silk Road How does a revolutionary ethos operate in parallel with China's more stable commercially focused approach in the Middle East and Levant in particular? So if you have any reflections on China and Iran and the Silk Road, one bridge, one road.
1: I I can only say they won't go very well, like Iran will not fare well if (laughs) they they stick to their revolutionary ethos. But Iran has also shown that they are seeking pragmatic uh, routes when it comes to uh, a few trusted allies or or like last resort allies like China. And again, they might still activate the informality of the organizations, especially with the sanctions pressuring them to find informal ways to do business. But yeah, I don't think they will be emphasizing or they have been um, relying on a radical revolutionary ethos when it comes down to business.
3: Siavush, anything to add to China-Iran relations?
2: Uh, No, I defer to Mariam and others. I'm not really an expert of the field. Well, I think
3: one very brief final question. We have a question from Ed Polsu. Again, questioning revolutionary or authoritarian. To what extent does the state apparatus of the Islamic Republic a comparison to the Pahlavi monarchy, monarchist or authoritarian in that case. Does it owe anything to the Ancien Regime? Is there any sense of a kind of evolution of the Islamic Republic into ways that would bear a resemblance to what had come before?
2: Can I go ahead? Uh, thank you, Ed. Um, good to read your question. I think yeah, well, that's the question, right? To what extent uh, was the revolution really a complete change in Iranian statecraft, uh, in the traditions of the Iranian state, in the architecture of the Iranian state? Well, uh, certain things have definitely changed. You know, we have actors such as the IRGC. We have uh, this sort of presidential elections every four years, which are always some, some sort of, they always create some form of, uh, of dynamism and some form of motion within the Iranian political uh, system. But at the same time, um, political parties were, or at least state political parties, or, or, or licensed or legitimate political parties in the pandemic period were very weak. Factionalism or personalism and personal politics were, uh, were far, more, was far more powerful as, as a form of political organization and political interaction. This to some extent has been carried over, you could argue in the Islamic Republic period, but most importantly, if you look at the helm of the state, we still have one institution on top, which is endowed constitutionally actually in the Islamic Republic case, and informally in the, in the, in the Mashuta era with a lot of power and authority and, and defines really the power and authority of the rest of the state system. They are called very differently, but the function, there are commonalities in the function. I don't want to say that the Supreme Leader is a Shah, or that the Shah is a, is a, is a but the sort of similarities that we see in terms of the, uh, the power and authority they wield, despite the fact that they're dished out in very different ways, should also make you think about the fact that there are endemic, some endemic traits of Iranian statecraft, which I don't think have disappeared with the revolution of 1979, and that brings a continuum of sorts uh, on the quest to build a modern state system which started in Iran since the constitutional revolution and in fits and starts has just been uh, hurtling on, I think, for over a century to the present day.
1: I will just briefly ditto what Siabo said. Yes, there are some similarities in the the very fact that authoritarianism exists, uh, that's continued to exist, but maybe it is the form it has been imposed on the society that has differed because of the outburst of so many, the bursting of so many parallel institutions uh, that have given people to maneuver around the like arms of authoritarianism or in some cases be more severely caught in it. Uh, Eugene, I'm
0: going to, Take back the microphone now. Uh, our time is up, sadly. Uh, there, there are uh, more questions that people would have liked to put. I'm afraid we just haven't had time to put all of them. Uh, so I'm going to thank Maryam and Siavos again very much for uh, such stimulating presentations and for answering the questions in such an interesting way. Thank you all for your questions and for being here. Please join us next week when Dalia Fahmi, and Danish Faroukhi will be talking about illiberal liberals and the future of dictatorship in Egypt. I see you next week. Bye bye.
1: Thank you.